And this morning we will be looking at the nine verses of chapter 13. If you'd please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Zechariah chapter 13. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested." They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would use this word to draw us ever closer to the Savior. Help us, O Lord, to know and to understand your will. Help us to know our duty before you. Describe for us, O Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, in vivid picture, that we might worship and adore him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning, as we look at chapter 13, the first thing that we need to understand and remember is that there is a direct link to chapter 12. Chronologically, both of these chapters are occurring at the same time. And there is a theme that runs through both of them. We see it in the very opening of chapter 13, the phrase, On that day. 
That phrase occurred over and over again at least seven times in chapter 12. And here again it opens chapter 13 and we see it several times in this chapter. What does the prophet mean when he says, on that day? This is a signal for us. A signpost, as it were. A signpost of prophetic fulfillment. But first we have to understand what prophetic fulfillment means. Oftentimes we think of prophecy as only being fulfilled at one point in time. And that's usually not the case in the scriptures. We have to think instead of looking at a range of mountains that are stacked up, as it were, one behind the other. And it might seem to us that there's only one mountain, but there are several peaks in a row. You see, what is happening here is that prophecy is fulfilled in the Scriptures over and over again until it reaches final fulfillment. And each of the interim fulfillments help us to see the final stage. So, for example, we see a fulfillment of this prophecy in the life and work and death of Jesus Christ. We see a fulfillment of this prophecy in us, in the church, as the church goes forward throughout the world. And then finally, we see a final fulfillment in the last days, when Jesus returns. What do we see a fulfillment of? Well, this morning, as we look at chapter 13, we're looking at a fountain. A fountain that is cleansing for God's people. We see three things about this fountain. First, we see a cleansing of sin. Second, we see a cleansing of life. And then third, the Lord opens up our eyes and shows us the cost of that cleansing. A cleansing of sin, a cleansing of life, and the cost of that cleansing itself. Well, let's go back to where we were at the beginning of chapter 13 and the bridge that goes back to chapter 12. Chapter 12 ended with leaving us with a sadness for sin. There was a great deal of anxiety and concern and mourning over the one who was pierced. For we, after all, in our sin, put the pierced one on the cross. So the question then comes as we open chapter 13, where do we go from here? Where do we find hope? You see, when we mourn for sin, we don't want to stay in that place. Because mourning for sin, sadness for sin is fine, but there must be more than that. There must be a hope that comes out of it. So many of us are sad about sin and mourn over sin. For many of us, we have committed at some point in our lives what we consider a great sin. Something that haunts us from our past. Something that we're not sure we could ever get over that could ever be forgiven. Others of us mourn over sin because we are in a constant battle with sin. We're constantly fighting and striving against sin. And then for others of us, it is just the fact that we live in a world that is filled with sin. Our own and those of others that causes us to mourn over sin as we look at a world that is not as it should be. 
As I've said, mourning over sin is necessary. But it is not sufficient. It does not resolve our problems. Because if we listen to our circumstances, and if we listen to the voice in our own head that repeats for us the sins that are in our past, then we will never have an escape. Sorrow for sin does not remove guilt of sin. And so this is where we must go. We must go and find removal of the guilt of sin. And the place where we can find it, Zechariah tells us, is by beginning to listen to the Lord. Not by listening to our own recriminations. Not by listening to our own past and circumstances. But by listening to the Lord in His Word. Where we find hope is in who God is. In what God has done. And what God has promised. And so Zechariah lays that out before us. He says, on that day, there will be a fountain. There will be a fountain opened up to cleanse from sin and uncleanness. Now this language of cleansing, of cleaning, of a fountain, of water, is not new to the scriptures. The entire book of Leviticus is filled with a variety of rituals... Of cleaning, cleansing by blood, cleansing by water. The prophet Ezekiel also speaks of this in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. So the Bible speaks about these kind of cleansings. One of the things that's interesting is that when it does, it speaks of sprinklings or of washings. Here we have something different in scope. We have a fountain that overflows. This cleansing flood is found in the fountain that God has given to us. And this fountain is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just take my word for it. Take it on the word of one who walked with Jesus throughout his ministry. Because in the final scenes of Jesus' death, as he hung upon the cross, the scriptures were being fulfilled. One scripture was that not one of his bones would be broken. And so unlike the normal practice of those who were crucified, his legs were not broken to quicken his death. Jesus did not need to be told when he would die. He gave up his life of his own accord. And so you may recall that he breathed his last, not needing to have his legs broken. But because of that, one of the soldiers wanted to make sure that he was dead. And you may recall that the soldier took a spear and he put it into his side. He pierced Jesus. And when Jesus was pierced, out flowed blood and water. And the Apostle John, who was there observing all of this, thought of this verse. He cited this verse, saying that the prophecy had been fulfilled. Can you just imagine what would be in John's mind at that time? He would know about all of the various ritual washings. He would know about all the need for cleansing for sin. He would know that it was continual Daily, weekly, annually. 
And yet, as he stands there at the cross and he sees the blood and the water flow out, he knows that all of the answers for sin have been found in Jesus. That Jesus is that fountain. This was the fulfillment of this fountain. Now remember, this is how God responds to sinners. Remember what we saw in chapter 12. That God's people had rejected his shepherd. They had rejected his son. They had put him on the cross and crucified him. And yet, in his death, Jesus opens up a fountain of cleansing and forgiveness. And the first way in which this fountain cleanses us is it cleanses us from the guilt of sin. We see this, as Zechariah says, that we are cleansed from sin. Sin brings us guilt before a holy God. Because we are guilty of disobeying the Lord, we come before the Lord guilty, and the wrath of God abides upon us. God's anger is over those who are guilty, who have violated His law. Now, this is not popular theology today. No one likes to be told what to do. No one likes to be told what they're doing is wrong. And no one certainly likes to hear that there is a wrath, an anger, a punishment that is due to them because of the way that they act and live. But this is what the scripture teaches us. That the wrath of God abides on those who have sinned. And what we need then is we need his anger to be turned aside from us. There's a fancy theological word for that. It's called propitiation. It's having the anger and wrath of God turned aside from us onto someone else. Now, you may have experienced something like this as you were growing up. You know, oftentimes we try to divert attention away from ourselves when we're caught in something. Those of you that had siblings know how this works. You get caught by your parents in something, a lie, a misbehavior, and you rack your brain and you say, well, that's all well and good, but do you know what my brother did? Have you seen what my sister did? Why don't you deal with them? And we try and divert the attention of our parents away. Now, we all know in our families, at best, that gets us a short reprieve. But with the omnipotent Lord, it's of no good at all. We can't divert God away from us and our sins simply by pointing out the sins of others. No. The wrath of God abides on us because we have sinned, because we have fallen short of His glory. But that wrath is turned aside by the fountain of Jesus. You see, we find true forgiveness and grace because the fountain of grace is found in the work and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer need to feel that guilt because with Jesus we can declare, it is finished. There is a fountain that cleanses us, that washes away the guilt of sin, that makes us new before our Lord. We can have hope and peace And we know that we can have a relationship with the Lord our God because of what Jesus has done. Instead of looking upon us with anger and wrath, He looks upon us with love and peace. 
He draws us into His family. This is all the work of Jesus. It is a fountain that cleanses us from sin's guilt. But there is more than a judicial aspect to sin. Sin makes us guilty and condemned before God. But if we are honest with ourselves, sin also changes who we are. Because we are sinners, we sin all the more. Because we sin in this way, we are unclean. We continue to be mired in sin. We continue to struggle with sin. After all, this is really the real struggle of life. Everything that we do is defiled by sin. Now, if we think about defilement, contamination, and disease, we have to understand its power. So if I said to you, come down to my house this afternoon, and I'll make you a wonderful steak dinner. Exact cut you'd like. To the exact temperature you'd like it cooked. And a great baked potato with all the fixings. And some vegetables on the side. It'll be wonderful. There's only going to be a very small amount of E. coli in the steak. Are you coming and eating the last bite? Of course not. Because that's not how contamination and defilement works. You don't put germs on clean linens and the germs go away. No, the linens are soiled. You don't put poison in a drink and the drink somehow wipes out the poison. The poison taints the entire drink. The E. coli ruins the entire steak. You see, this is what we have to understand about sin. That sin is deadly. It is contaminating. It makes us unclean before our Lord. The Apostle Paul understood this in Romans 7. As he'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was still struggling with sin. He knew what he wanted to do. But he didn't do it. He knew what he shouldn't do, and he did it anyway. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul cries out, where's my hope? I try as hard as I can, and I can't do it. And perhaps you're experiencing that right now. You have temptations that come to you, and you're sure you're going to kick them. You're sure you're going to have a better week this week than last week. That you'll honor your parents perfectly. That you'll never get cross with your spouse. That you'll work as hard as you ever have. And yet time and time again you fall. Who can deliver us from this body of death and uncleanness? Paul answers that question for us. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Jesus Christ is that cleansing fountain. Not only cleansing us from the guilt of sin, but from the uncleanness of sin, from the power of sin that it is over us. Look at what Zechariah says. He speaks of both of them in verse 1. We are cleansed not only from sin, but from uncleanness as well. Yes, there's a fancy theological word for that too. You can write this one down. It's called expiation. What expiation is, is a ridding of the defilement, of the uncleanness of sin. And we have a picture of that even in the book of Zechariah. You remember in Zechariah chapter 3 how the high priest went before the throne of God and he went and he was in filthy clothes. And the enemy, the adversary, came to accuse him because of that. Do you remember what the Lord did? He said, take off those filthy clothes and clothe him in robes of righteousness. You see, the answer for the uncleanness of our sin is found in Jesus and in His work. And remember, this is not just a sprinkling. So if you're saying to yourself right now, that's all well and good, but pastor, you don't know me. I've got a lot of sin in my background. The things that go through my mind are horrible. The things I say at times, I can't control. Then remember that God has given you great and abundant provision in Jesus. Not just barely enough, but an overwhelming provision. A fountain that flows and overflows and surrounds us and drowns us, as it were, in God's grace. And this is how we understand that God's promises are true. We experience that partial fulfillment even now. As we come to Christ, we are able to resist sin. We are able to do righteousness. We are able to block away the sinful habits of our life. Not perfectly, but more and more as we grow in grace, as the grace of Jesus Christ comes over us, we are able to battle against sin. But what we wait for is that full fulfillment, isn't it? In glory. When there will be no more sin. When there will be no more sorrow. When we will do no more wickedness when there will be no spot at all on us. This is the work of Jesus. He died not only to make you free from sin and its guilt, but from the burden of sin as well. The second thing that we see in our text this morning is that there is a cleansing not just of sin, but there is a cleansing of life. Because being freed from guilt and from the power of sin, means taking on a new life. It means a change in who we are and what we do. And that means a new life of obedience. That brings about a new community. Think about the history of revival in America and through the world. What happens in a revival? Individuals come to faith in Christ. They They receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The claims of the gospel are pressed upon them. They understand their own sin and their need for a Savior. And they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that He has done upon the cross. And when they do that, it leads to a desire in their lives for more holiness and obedience. And when that happens, their community starts to change. 
Their city starts to change. Even the world starts to change. This impresses even those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. They're walking around wondering, why is everyone so pleased? Why is everyone so gracious? Why is everyone so truthful? It's because of the change that Jesus makes. And the prophet now wants to emphasize this to us. And he does it through the history of Israel that also touches our history as well. In the Old Testament, there were two main evils in Israel. Idolatry and false prophets. But now the Lord is talking about a restoration that he will bring. And so we see him getting rid of these evils. The first evil is idolatry. He says there will be no more idolatry. In verse 2 he says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Now in Israel this was a constant temptation before them. Especially because they were surrounded by peoples who were idolaters. Who were telling them, This is what you're supposed to do. If you want to be well thought of, this is what you should do and believe. There was a constant push on the people of Israel to give in to idolatry. Now, you may say to yourself, that's all well and good, but but how does that affect me? After all, I will be completely honest with you as your pastor. I do not struggle with the thought of building a giant metal bull on my front lawn. I have not once ever considered buying a large log to set up a totem pole in my backyard. And you see, if that's what we view as being idols, it's easy for us to say, we don't have this problem. We don't have this temptation. But what exactly is an idol? It's not just something that we manufacture out of wood or metal. An idol is really anything that we put in the place of God. It could be our leisure time. It could be wealth. It could be fame. It could be all of the things that the world around us is telling us we need to be seeking after. Don't worry about these things about God. You've got a reputation to maintain. Are you really going to waste your time on the things of God? Are you really going to give some of your money to a church? Don't you know what's important is wealth and stability? Now you really need to take it easy. Don't work so hard. Don't get so riled up. Living a leisurely life, a life that's paced, that's what's important. You see, this is what the world is constantly telling us through film through television, through books, through articles. But the good news of the gospel is that God tells us how effective He is. That He has changed the hearts of His people and that that fountain cleanses us and it wipes away the idols of our land. It wipes them away so much that the names of the idols will not even be remembered. Can you imagine that? Not only will you not be tempted by idols anymore, you won't even be able to remember the names of the things that tempted you. That is a cleansing. 
That is the work of Jesus. You see, what Jesus does is He gives us focus. He brings focus to our lives that we need and we could not get otherwise. Jesus pushes away from us all of the sound and the chum and the noise of idols. And He allows us to focus upon the Lord our God. And as we travel through our Christian life, more and more we are able to put aside idols until that day, that day of final fulfillment, in which all the idols are gone and will no longer be remembered. There is a second evil that Zechariah speaks about, and that is the evil of listening to false prophets. He says here, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone prophesies, his mother and his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. Now this was a problem that had plagued Israel for centuries. You may remember the prophet Micaiah who came to King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat as they were preparing to go off to war. And there were 400 prophets that said, You should go out to battle. The Lord has given you victory. Then, of course, there was the one man, Micaiah, that Ahab couldn't stand because he always prophesied bad things. And he said, Micaiah, you need to tell me what the Lord has told you. And Micaiah said, they're all lying. They're all false prophets. They have a spirit of lying. You remember on Mount Carmel when Elijah stood alone against 300 false prophets of the prophet Baal. You remember in Jeremiah's day when he could not get the leaders of Israel to listen to him because there was so much noise from the false prophets. But you see, Zechariah says, now these false prophets will be removed. No one, not even their family, will have sympathy with them. No one will be willing to be associated with them. The prophets will not try to be seen. They won't put on a prophet's cloak. They don't want to be known or asked about being a false prophet. They are willing, actually, rather to say that I am a slave who works the land than a prophet. Do you see that? I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. It's better for me to be a slave, to be thought of as a slave, than a prophet, a false prophet. Now why is this? That's because, pun intended, there's no profit in this anymore. There's no blessing to be found in being a false prophet. Because God has cleansed the land. He has cleansed His people. There is no one to hold up the false prophets and to honor them. Now again, This is something that we need to understand and think about. Now, you cannot go down to Katie Mills Mall and find someone who says, Listen to me, I speak in the name of Baal. You will not find someone in the town square who says, Come with me and I will declare and my God will shut up the rains and there will be no more rain. But there are still those who speak falsely. Because you see, a false prophet is anyone who claims to speak with authority and yet rejects God's authority. 
So we see this in the church, broadly speaking. One example of this is a man, a former minister, so-called, by the name of Rob Bell, who decided to declare that heaven wasn't really real, and hell was less real, and that the Bible really was just written by men, and God didn't have anything to do with it. And so he attempted to lead people astray from the truth of God's word, even from within the church. There's also plenty of false teaching and false prophets out in the world and in society today. I can think of no better, more vivid example of this than Oprah. She tells you what to think. She tells you what to read. She tells you who to be. She tells you all of this is spiritual, and yet none of it is connected to the Bible or the God of the Bible. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of others in a similar situation. We see it even in the rejection of our, by our society of God and His Word. But this is the victory of Jesus Christ. It's not just a personal cleansing. It's not just a victory over individual sin. It is a cosmic victory. Jesus will purify the land as well. He will cleanse God's people and where they are so that there will be no more idolatry. There will be no more false teachers or ways. This is the power of the fountain of Christ. Well, how does this come about? How do we have this cleansing? Do we clean up our own act? Does it come when we're more educated and knowledgeable? Maybe our technology is a part of the answer. The answer of how this comes about is actually a shocking one. The cost of the cleansing is first and foremost that the Lord's own is cut off. Look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. God here awakens the sword of justice. Justice will be executed. But on whom? Not on we who deserve it. But on the shepherd. On the one who is next to the Lord. The Hebrew is my companion. The one who is closest to God will be struck by the sword of justice and vengeance. Judgment falls on the innocent one who is the closest in relationship to the Lord. Now this, this gives us hope. Because what the Lord tells us is that Jesus' death will accomplish the ends of the Lord. It's not that God reluctantly accepts us because He has to. No, rather instead, the Lord our God has removed the barrier between us and Him at the greatest possible cost to Himself. He has cleansed us at the cost of His Son. Now this shows us the great cost of sin, doesn't it? Sin is what has brought about separation within the Godhead. 
Sin is what has brought about the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so I ask you this morning, is that how you think about sin normally and regularly? Or do you think about sin as something that is small potatoes? Can be pushed off to the side at will? Do we really understand the true nature of our sin and the cost of our sin? Because if we did, we would seek with all of our strength to leave off from sin. We would strive in all of our being to be as close to Jesus as we possibly can. We would want as much of his cleansing life and blood to be on us. Only Jesus could be the one who is struck. He must be a man in order to pay the penalty, but yet he must be God in order to pay it. Only Jesus could be the sufficient fountain to cleanse from sin. And the good news of the gospel is that he does this willingly. Jesus tells us this. I think thinking of this passage in John chapter 10, when he says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There is one last prophecy to be fulfilled. As the shepherd is stricken, we see again in verse 7 that the sheep will be scattered. In verse 8, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. The sheep are scattered, and once again we see this multiple fulfillments. We see it first and foremost at the cross itself. You remember that the gospel writers say that this was fulfilled because all of the disciples scattered from our Lord. They were not found at the cross. They went to different places and different ways. We saw it also fulfilled in God's people in 70 A.D. as they rejected Jesus and put Him upon the cross. And because of that, they were scattered. Scattered by the Romans. It is easy to believe that two-thirds of the Jews in Israel at the time were killed during the war with the Romans. And the final third were scattered throughout all of the world. We even see it, I think, in the church. As a church, we are scattered about the entirety of the world, scattered to be ambassadors for Jesus, to bring growth to the church. And this actually cautions us against the way we think about power and the church. We think it's our job to build up power, to be a power base, to get things done for Jesus. But you see, what God's Word says here is we are scattered, and the Lord works through us as we are scattered, because it is His power and authority, not our own. And this is the way that the Lord refines us as His people. We don't have the power we want, do we? We don't have the life of ease that we want, do we? No, because this is how the Lord Jesus Christ refines us. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul went out in the book of Acts on a missionary journey? Someone from the marketing department did not tell him what he should preach. Because he went and he said, Now, you must continue in the faith. 
Because it is through many tribulations that you would enter the kingdom of God. You see, this is how Jesus refines us. Our circumstances and our tribulations are the refiner's fire, Zechariah says. We're refined like silver, tested like gold, like Peter says in his letter. That the genuineness of our faith is tested by fire, through the fiery trials that we get. And the end of all of this is a relationship with God. Because as we go through these trials, as we are refined by Jesus, the great God that we serve draws us to Himself. They will call upon my name, the Lord says. And then the great news of the gospel is that God answers. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, I am their God. This is all the work of Jesus. It is a fountain that was opened up by his life and especially his death. A fountain that cleanses us from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. That brings us to a new life and a new obedience and a new hope. And it comes at an incredible cost. But a cost that Jesus was willing to pay. Because he set his love upon his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for how you let us know of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there is none like you. Remind us each and every day of how much we need you, how we long for you, and of how you have provided for us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.